Hello and welcome to another I Am Journal Club. Uh, today's session is a topic that is close to the heart of many hospitals and infectious diseases specialists, uh, remdesivir, which has been from the beginning one of the medicines we use for severe COVID uh, and antiviral. Um, our speaker will look into the evidence behind remdesivir uh, especially into subgroups, into certain trials. And I hope we have a very lively discussion at the end. Let me introduce our speaker to you. Uh, Dr. Rajesh Tim Gandhi graduated from Harvard Medical School, as well as from two subspecialty fellowships uh, in uh, infectious diseases and hematology oncology. Um, he graduated from uh, Johns Hopkins University in infectious diseases and from uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Center in hematology oncology. Uh, he's currently uh, the director uh, of the uh, HIV um, service at Massachusetts General Hospital and he's a professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, I thank him for uh, doing today's talk and without further ado, hand it over to him. Thank you for inviting me. As mentioned, my name is Raj Gandhi. I'm going to be talking about um, remdesivir and trying to answer the question, does it really work? Um, I want to acknowledge uh, Courtney Turn for assistance with this talk. Um, and before we launch into the evidence, um, I'm going to just say a word of background. So what is remdesivir? I think is as well known. It's a nucleotide prodrug. It works to inhibit the viral polymerase. And this drug was actually first identified years ago uh, through a screen for compounds efficacious against coronaviridae, but also flavoviridae. And it was first evaluated um, as an antiviral against a number of RNA viruses, um, including Ebola, MERS, and SARS-CoV-1, or the original SARS coronavirus. Um, a word about how the drug actually works. Um, this is a schematic um, taken from a clinical micro biological review uh, journal. And the drug itself enters cells where it's phosphorylated to a triphosphate um, form, it's a nucleoside. And that triphosphate form is what acts as a ch chain terminator to inhibit viral replication. And we're gonna get into in a moment, uh, some of the issues around its antiviral effect, um, including some difficulties in demonstrating its antiviral effect, but this is the mechanism, at least in vitro. Um, now, what is the evidence um, um, prior to the COVID pandemic? It came in part from an animal study for remdesivir's use for SARS-CoV-2. So what is the evidence for its efficacy, its effect in SARS-CoV-2? So in this study that was from the early days of COVID, the first month or so of COVID, it was done in an animal model, rhesus macaques, where the macaque was infected with SARS-CoV-2, and then almost immediately thereafter given remdesivir. And what they found in this animal study that was published in Nature in early 2020 was that the drug reduced SARS-CoV-2 levels in the lung of the animals, but intriguingly not in the upper respiratory tract. It was also found to decrease uh, lung damage in those animal models. So remdesivir has been approved for um, treatment of COVID-19 in both adults and pediatric patients. You see some details there around the pediatric um, indication uh, who have a positive results on viral testing and who are either hospitalized 
or if not hospitalized, they have mild to moderate COVID and are at risk, high risk for progression to severe COVID. And we'll see some of the evidence behind that. Now, I understand the focus of this um, session is on um, hospitalized patients, but I'm going to review the, the gamut of clinical data so you can see how it all fits together. And I will say, I'll present the clinical data from a number of studies, give you my own perspective near the end, and then open it up for discussion because I, I do want to have 10 or 15 minutes even for a back and forth around this drug. So here's a, the way I'd like to um, conceptualize COVID-19 treatment. It starts, of course, with um, the earliest stages when a patient is either asymptomatic or if destined to become symptomatic, pre-symptomatic, where they have a positive test but no symptoms. Mild illness, of course, is things like fever, cough, taste, smell changes, no dyspnea. And then moderate illness is evidence of lower tract disease, but a preserved oxygen saturation. And this is the phase. These three um, phases are when people are not hospitalized. Severe illness is when an individual has hypoxemia, tachypnea, extensive lung infiltrates, and then, of course, critical illness is well-known, respiratory failure, multi-organ failure. In the upper respiratory tract, where it's easiest to measure, viral replication is greatest just as people enter mild uh, illness, um, and then tends to tail off in the nasopharynx as people enter severe illness, which is where inflammation comes to the fore during hospitalization. And that's why antivirals largely have been studied uh, and have their greatest impact early in the course of disease. Now, let's focus on remdesivir for a minute in this earlier stage before we get to the hospitalized patients. So in mild to moderate illness, the data that I suspect many of you are aware of is from the pine tree study, but I want to delve into it just a little bit, because I would say this is the study that's most unambiguously positive in terms of a, an effect of remdesivir. We'll, we'll see other studies in a moment, but this study, I think, is perhaps the most um, clear-cut evidence for the, the uh, efficacy of remdesivir. So what is pine tree? It's a Randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that was done in about 560 non-hospitalized individuals with COVID who had symptom onset within the previous seven days, so a fairly tight window of, of uh, duration of symptoms. All of the individuals in Pine Tree were unvaccinated. The drug was given as an intravenous infusion for three days compared to placebo. And importantly, the bottom bullet here is it was stopped early for administrative reasons, a variety of administrative reasons. It was intended to be an over uh, a thousand individuals were to be enrolled and they stopped it um, early. Here was who was in Pine Tree, people in their 50s on average, um, about ha uh, roughly half male, half female. The median duration of symptoms, and this is important, was just about five days. So people were relatively early in the course of their COVID. And you can see that the viral levels, the SARS-CoV-2 RNA levels were about a million uh, uh, copies per, uh, a million copies. And so that's a relatively high uh, amount of virus. Um, it can go up even into tens of millions, but here it was about a million. These are the bottom line results or the main results. This is looking at hospitalization and death by day 28. You see about 5% in the placebo group were hospitalized and none of them died. 0.7% in the remdesivir group were hospitalized. Again, none of them died. And so that translates to an 87% reduction in hospitalization. So here's a feature of Pine Tree that is in the, was in the presentation, uh, but also in the article. And I just want to highlight it because, of course, we started out by saying remdesivir is an antiviral. But when they looked at these, human, these people with um, mild to moderate disease, they could not see a, any effect really on, on um, 
on upper airway SARS-CoV-2 levels, you see blue and gray really overlapping in terms of remdesivir and placebo. So some of the conclusions from pine tree, um, when administered for three consecutive days, within seven days of symptom onset, there is an appreciable and a meaningful reduction in hospitalization and death. There was no effect on nasopharyngeal um, virus levels, and this is consistent with that prior macaque study and begs the question as to if there's an antiviral effect, which is still what we think is the mechanism of action, might it be going on in lungs as it was in the animals, as opposed to in the nasopharynx. This has yet to be proven, but at least is a, a possibility. So before we turn to hospitalized patients, this is how many of us think about um, the outpatient therapies, um, um, uh, the, the four choices that are really in widespread use in the United States to varying degrees, nematavir, ritonavir, probably is the most um, um, the, the first choice for most people because of its relative risk reduction of 88% in hospitalization to death. Its advantages are it's quite efficacious and it's an oral regimen unlike remdesivir. It's, um, the ritonavir component seems to be safe in pregnancy. Its disadvantage, of course, are drug interactions. Remdesivir falls second. I've shown you the pine tree data, 87% reduction in uh, hospitalization. It too is highly efficacious when given in this patient population. It has reasonable data and, and safety data in pregnancy and has few to no drug interactions. Its downside in the outpatient setting, less so in the inpatient setting, is the intravenous infusion um, over three consecutive days. And then I won't belabor the next two choices. They're used, I would say, um, to varying degrees. Beptilovimab um, is a monoclonal antibody for which there are phase two data, but certainly there's good phase three data from other monoclonal antibodies it's this only surviving monoclonal antibody in the US because of the fact that in laboratory studies, it has activity against um, the various sub-isolates of Omicron. Uh, it too requires an IV infusion. And molnupiravir, I won't belabor at all. It's got lower efficacy, 30% relative risk reduction. Um, it is an oral regimen, but it has limitations around um, lower efficacy and concerns around mutagenicity and um, avoidance in pregnancy in children. So now for the remainder of the time, I'm gonna really focus on uh, hospitalized patients. Now we're into the realm of severe to critical illness. And I think many of you will remember um, the initial press release from Act One and then the publication from Act One. So what was Act One? Let's reflect on this for a moment. So this is an NH sponsored study done in adults hospitalized with COVID and who had evidence of lower respiratory tract infection that was either clinical or radiographic evidence of pneumonia, essentially. It was double-blind, it was randomized, it was placebo-controlled. And individuals received remdesivir, uh, in this case, for a total of 10 days or placebo. And the primary outcome of Act 1 was time to recovery. So here's a reminder for those of you who uh, remember this from 2020. This is a reminder of who was in an Act 1. Um, the average age was in the high 50s, 58, 59. The median time from symptom onset to enrollment was just under 10 days. It was nine days in both groups. And just as a reminder, and this will become important when we get into the subgroups that, was, that were mentioned, just about 12 to 13% of these hospitalized individuals were not requiring oxygen. Now, currently in 2022, we might not admit such individuals, but we were admitting some of them back in 2020 when we knew far less about COVID. About 40% roughly in Act 1 were hospitalized requiring oxygen, but on what's sometimes called conventional oxygen, not high flow. About 20% or a bit under were on high flow or non-invasive ventilation and about 24 to 29%, depending on the arm, were 
mechanically ventilated or on ECMO at the time of enrollment. So this would be different if you reflect on it. If, if you did a study today and you were choosing a drug, you would probably not have such a high percentage of people who are on mechanical ventilation and ECMO and because you would start the enrollment earlier in the course. And I think we just have to remember back in 2020, many of these patients, we, we were a site here at Mass General, people who cared for these patients remember they were often being transferred from other hospitals. They may have been sick for some days. And so there was, it was quite a heterogeneous population. So here's the uh, time to recovery data, the proportion recovered. In remdesivir and ACT1, this placebo-controlled study was associated with a shorter time to recovery, 10 versus 15 days. Mortality was a little over 11% in the remdesivir group, just over 15% in the placebo group. The hazard ratio there was 0.73. You see that the confidence interval crosses one, um, um, but there was a trend towards a reduction in mortality. But the bulk of the benefit, the bulk of the benefit was in those who are on supplemental oxygen, but not yet intubated. So just as a reminder, there's a series of what are called ordinal scales. Ordinal scale five is hospitalized requiring conventional oxygen. And if you look at the box that I've highlighted, um, the hazard ratio for death in this subgroup was 0.3. That means a 70% reduction in, in mortality in this subgroup. Now, this was a post-hoc analysis and one must acknowledge that, but nevertheless, in this group, there did seem to be an effect. Remdesivir also, and this is important also that I would say, as I, it informs my thinking about remdesivir, the time to recovery data really did seem to favor remdesivir's use when given within 10 days of symptom onset. So what you're seeing here is the time to recovery. And in those individuals who had had more than 10 days of symptoms, um, the effect of remdesivir was less pronounced, less evident than it was in those people who had been symptomatic for less than or equal to 10 days. Now, solidarity really was the study that called Act 1 into question. And so I think it's worthwhile uh, reflecting a little bit on, on what solidarity was all about. So this was a WHO-sponsored study. Somewhere over 14,000 adults hospitalized with COVID in more than 30 countries. There were a number of different drugs, repurposed drugs that were evaluated. You see them listed here, lopinavir, hydroxychloroquine, interferon beta, and remdesivir. We're gonna focus only on the remdesivir group. There were no placebos, it was open label. So the, the no drug group um, was um, the clinicians and the patients knew if they were either getting remdesivir or no drug standard of care. And it was stratified by age and level of respiratory support at entry. So who is in solidarity? Um, you see the age distribution here. What I wanna focus your attention though is um, about 21% of people in solidarity were on no oxygen, about 70% were on oxygen. And here we don't know the level of oxygen. We don't know if they were on low flow, conventional oxygen, high flow, non-invasive, and then a little over 8% were ventilated. I also wanna draw your attention to the very bottom line here, number of days in the hospital. The bulk of the patients, 43% of individuals had been in the hospital for two or more days before study entry. So again, we don't know the duration of symptoms here. That was not recorded in solidarity, but we do know that a good proportion of patients had been in the hospital for two days or more. And, and it's hard to say if, if, you know, my belief is that as you get further into the hospitalization, the drug is like, we'd have less and less effect. So if you remember 2020, um, 
and 2021, the preliminary analysis of solidarity is that remdesivir had no effect on mortality. And that's why the WHO to this day has not um, endorsed um, use of remdesivir in hospitalized patients. Although the final analysis, final analysis of solidarity, which was published about six or eight weeks ago, eight weeks ago now on May 2nd, uh, showed a somewhat more nuanced picture that we'll get into now. And I do believe the WHO are re-looking at at these data um, now that the final results are in. So the final results for uh, the remdesivir uh, portion of the study was done on 8,275 individuals. Again, the overall mortality was not different, 14.5% in the remdesivir group, 15.6% in the open label control. Again, um, this was an open label study. In patients who were already ventilated at the time of enrollment, there was no effect of remdesivir on mortality. It was 42% versus 39%. But in patients who are not yet ventilated earlier in their disease course, the mortality was just under 12%, 11.9% went through remdesivir, 13.5% in the standard of care group. This is a relative risk reduction. This is a relative risk of 0.86, which is statistically significant. And then progression to death or ventilation was 19.6 in the remdesivir group versus 22.5%. So a relative risk of 0.84. Now, one might say, and I would agree that these are relatively modest effects, but I do think that there is an appreciable effect um, of remdesivir when given earlier in the course of disease before people are mechanically ventilated. And when I give you my perspective near the end, uh, we'll come back to that point. Before getting there though, I wanna um, mention just a couple of other studies that I think are informative. One is a study from Canada, just north of where I am right now called CATCO. This was also an open label study, randomized controlled trial in 52 Canadian hospitals, just um, over 1,260 individuals with uh, confirmed COVID randomized to 10 days of IV remdesivir or standard of care versus standard of care alone. Sorry, 10 days of IV remdesivir plus standard of care or standard of care alone. Many of these people, 951, the bulk of them were also in the solidarity trial. This is the important uh, participant characteristics um, from CATCO. Now we're into the mid 60s. So, um, you know, an older population than, than uh, some of the earlier trials. Time from symptom onset to randomization was eight days. And now you see the spread with about 52% or so, 52 to 56% on low flow oxygen, about a quarter, a little under a quarter on high flow, and then under 10% mechanically ventilated. I don't show this here, but I want to stress this now. In CATCO, dexamethasone use was common in both arms. It was actually 87% of participants in the standard of care arm received dexamethasone because by that point in time, that had been established as standard of care for those on oxygen. And 87% in the remdesivir group got dexamethasone. So what we're seeing with CATCO essentially is a remdesivir plus dexamethasone comparison to dexamethasone alone. And I think that's informative because many of us have been using remdesivir plus dexamethasone. And this allows us to, to get some sense of what the added effect of remdesivir is on top of dexamethasone. That's different than some of the earlier trials that I've already mentioned. So here are the outcomes for, from CATCO. The mortality was 18.7% with remdesivir. It was 22.6% with standard of care. You can see the relative risk reduction for mortality is um, 0.83. Um, again, the confidence intervals cross one, but a trend towards a reduction in mortality. 
What was clear though, is that the need for new mechanical ventilation was substantially lower in the remdesivir group. It was 8% in the remdesivir group versus 15% in the standard of care group. That's a 47% reduction. And the number of uh, ventilator-free days was also greater in the remdesivir group than in the standard of care group. Um, this is just um, showing you that if you focus in on the group from CATCO that was on oxygen, high flow as opposed to ventilated, that the trend is towards an improved odds ratio in terms of the hospital death rate. It, it really goes along with what the prior data showed. So now before I begin to sum up, again, I'm deliberately keeping the, the evidence profile to the first 30 minutes. As I wanna, um, we talked about outpatients, we talked about hospitalized patients largely who are on oxygen, but what about hospitalized patients with moderate disease, that is hospitalized patients who are not requiring oxygen. And here I wanna to, um, touch on one new study and then come back to act one. So one new study first. So this is a manufacturer sponsored study, the manufacturer of remdesivir published in JAMA in 2020. So this particular study was an open label randomized trial. It was 596 individuals who had confirmed moderate COVID-19 randomized to one of three arms, and again, open label. So either remdesivir for five days, remdesivir for 10 days, or standard of care. You see the age distribution in the three groups um, in the uh, mid to high 50s for the age. You see that most of the people were on no supplemental oxygen. There was a small minority of people who by the time they were enrolled did progress to requiring oxygen, but 84% or so, 80 to 84% of people in all of the groups, if you could see my cursor, were hospitalized, but not on oxygen. So that's the group we're interested in. So this is the ordinal scale distribution over time. And what you're seeing is um, a comparison of standard of care to five days of remdesivir to 10 days of remdesivir. And you're looking at baseline ordinal scale distribution. And you're looking at day six, 11, 14, and 28. In gray, you're seeing discharge. And in um, the different colors, you're seeing an or a different ordinal scale distribution between the three arms. So a couple of things I wanna draw your attention to. The odds ratio for a better clinical status on day 11, the odds ratio favored the five days of remdesivir over standard of care. That was that ordinal scale distribution was better in the remdesivir five day group than standard of care. And that was statistically significant, but in, surprisingly in the 10 day group, Although it went in the same direction, that was no longer statistically significant in terms of the ordinal scale improvement. When you pool the two remdesivir arms, um, you do get a statistically significant result. But if you look at, for example, discharges, let's look at gray, which is discharges. Standard of care, 83% of them discharged by day 28 compared to 90% in the 10-day group, 89% in the five-day group. Or if you want to look earlier in the course, this is the day 11 outcomes. In the standard of care group by day 11, 60% discharge from the hospital compared to in the five-day group, 70% and 65%. So at the time these data were released, I think there was uncertainty as to the benefit, particularly because of this 10-day versus five-day um, comparison. And we can come back to that during the discussion and I'll, I'll give you my perspective on this, but I think there's a suggestion of, of um, benefit in moderate disease, but not as definitive as one would like, but a suggestion of benefit. 
Let's go back to Act One. Act One again was a, over a thousand individuals, of whom 159 had mild to moderate disease. They were all hospitalized, and of whom 138 of those 159 were in ordinal scale four. What's ordinal scale four? This is requiring hospitalization, but no oxygen. So if you go into the supplement of Act One, the New England Journal paper, they have these kind of um, colorful graphs with blue being good, blue being not hospitalized or lower ordinal scale and red being bad, red being death, um, ordinal scale seven is mechanically ventilated. What you're seeing in the top is remdesivir with kind of a shift towards the blue um, and placebo, um, a less of a shift towards the blue in terms of people who are baseline ordinal scale four, not on oxygen, but hospitalized. A sense with these small numbers, look at the numbers here, 75 and 63, a sense that there's an improvement in an outcome. And one of the other figures is that the incidence of new oxygen use among those who are not requiring oxygen at enrollment was lower in the remdesivir group than in the placebo group. So again, some sense that in this moderate group that there is a, 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 an effect, although admittedly not a profound effect. I'll conclude with um, one meta-analysis that was published recently um, from Todd Lee and others. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis. This includes eight randomized controlled trials of hospitalized patients with COVID treated either with remdesivir versus either placebo or standard of care. So some of these are open label studies. Just over 10,700 participants in this systematic review meta-analysis. A couple of limitations. Um, the majority of people in this um, meta-analysis were unvaccinated because that reflects the timing of many of the large studies. And all of the data were pre-Delta and all of the data were pre-Omicron. The meta-analysis was done on a risk ratio scale and the outcome was mortality stratified by oxygen use. I, I'll give you the three categories that they focus on. So the risk ratio for mortality in remdesivir versus control stratified by oxygen status are as follows. 0.77 or a 23% reduction with broad confidence intervals for those who did not require oxygen. 0.89 with tighter confidence intervals shown here in those who are non-ventilated and requiring oxygen, and then 1.08 with broad confidence intervals in those who are ventilated. They conclude that there's a high probability, about 94%, that remdesivir reduces mortality for non-ventilated patients requiring oxygen but who are not critically ill. My last two slides, this is my, does remdesivir work? That's what I was asked to um, discuss. I, I do think it has a role in treating COVID-19, but its benefit, I think, is greatest if started early. And if it started when a person is requiring oxygen, and especially if they're requiring increasing amounts of oxygen, certainly the, the bedrock of therapy is immunomodulation, but I would combine it with immunomodulation with, with remdesivir, and I, I won't talk about immunomodulation here. This is kind of a schematic that I sometimes use for myself to really put up where the different drugs fall. Um, ranging from the outpatient drugs, the vaccines, and the immunomodulators. And also I do position remdesivir really in, in this kind of, sometimes it's called the Goldilocks zone, the, the just right zone in terms of um, um, combined with immunomodulation for hospitalized people on oxygen, and perhaps with a role in uh, other select hospitalized patients as well. So I think I've kept probably to my 30 minutes or maybe even a minute or so with, uh, before that. So I'm going to um, I think take down my slides and um, look forward to discussion and um, 
both questions, but also perspectives from others on the call. Thank you so much, Dr. Gandhi, for this uh, super interesting talk. Um, everybody who is either on Zoom or YouTube, feel free to put uh, questions into the chat and then I will read them aloud. And maybe I can start us off uh, with a question. Um, so you basically agree with the, with the IDSA, uh, the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of, of America, uh, and uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, that you said the WHO is currently reviewing their guidance. Uh, you, you, you would uh, agree with those two that remdesivir is beneficial. Could you repeat again for which subgroup um, remdesivir, in your opinion, should be used? Yes. So not only um, do I agree, but I will say, and I should have put this on a slide, but I'll say it now. Um, I am a member of both of those two panels, both IDSA and the NIH COVID-19 treatment guidelines panels. What I presented today, though, is my own perspective. Um, it does in large part, but not entirely accord with those two guidelines. But yes, I would say my own perspective is, is similar um, to those two panels and, and differs to some degree from WHO. So we will see what WHO does with the, the final solidated results. I think um, the subgroups where I would most uh, confidently recommend remdesivir is in the group of people who are hospitalized, who are ill enough to require oxygen, but not yet ill enough to be on high flow, and who have relatively recent onset of their symptoms, so within approximately 10 days or less. Mm -hmm. I think in that group, um, the aggregate evidence supports the use of remdesivir. Um, now, if they're requiring oxygen and they're on more than just a very minimal amount, I think they absolutely should also be on dexamethasone. And if they're having progressive disease, um, uh, that dexamethasone should then be probably augmented with either baricitinib or tocilizumab. But I would put remdesivir in the mix. I would re recommend it be used alongside those immunomodulators in that group of people who are requiring oxygen um, who aren't yet to the point of requiring a ventilation. Mm -hmm. Now, in my experience, it's relatively rare now for someone to come in ventilated. That is, most people have some hours to days before they require ventilation. So I, I think we're largely making the remdesivir decision before they're ventilated. I guess it's possible someone could come to the emergency room and be ventilated in the emergency room. Um, but usually there's some, some period of time before they're ventilated where we're making the remdesivir decision. If someone came to the emergency room or perhaps a different scenario, already ventilated, uh, has been ill for some time, for some reason hasn't gotten remdesivir. In that instance, I don't see um, that there's a utility to adding on remdesivir. So yeah, I think the group that I'm most confident on is the one that I've mentioned. I can also talk about um, people who are hospitalized and not requiring oxygen. There is some evidence that I tried to present for the so-called moderate disease. I think that's a relatively small group that is if they're hospitalized for COVID, um, most people are on oxygen. Um, I admit though, sometimes it can be dis tricky to distinguish are they hospitalized for COVID or with COVID? That is, are they hospitalized for heart failure and they happen to test positive and, and that, that turns out to be a judgment call, so. Mm -hmm. Did I answer your question or you're welcome to, and you or anyone else is welcome to push back <laughs> on that statement and, and question it because I'm happy to, you know, there are some differences perspective. I think you were very clear on the hospitalized patients who, who um, have severe COVID, but 
what about patients, uh, either outpatients or patients hospitalized with COVID who have only moderate disease? Uh, no. Would you agree with the risk factors that were, um, that were um, hypothesized by pine tree? Yes, so I, I think the evidence for moderate disease, I, I think there is some evidence in support of um, remdesivir's use in moderate disease, not yet on oxygen. But I think where I feel like I would recommend it is in someone who has um, risk factors for progression. So in an immunocompromised individual, um, I think most of us would feel most comfortable in an immunocompromised people, person, even if they're not on oxygen, um, but has COVID and, and is symptomatic with COVID to, to use remdesivir. Um, I think if I had a person, and this happened to me last time I was on service, it was someone in their early 40s who was probably hospitalized for their endocarditis in the setting of substance use disorder. He tested positive for COVID, but his cycle threshold was 35, a very high cycle threshold. He almost certainly had endocarditis and the COVID was probably incidental. He was in his early 40s, had no other risk factors, and we chose not to give him remdesivir. We, we thought that let's treat his endocarditis and, and the COVID was really not the, the primary reason for his hospitalization. And we didn't give remdesivir there. So. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what about all those endpoints? Uh, I mean, maybe there's an understand, uh, there's a misunderstanding in terms of uh, powering trials for primary efficacy endpoint. Uh, you showed these wonderful graphs with these ordinal scale outcomes. Um, what I took away from the act, uh, the, the, the graph in the appendix was that remdesivir really sh seems to shift outcomes from um, you know, death, ICU, ventilated towards uh, either, you know, still in the hospital or early discharge. Would that be an appropriate way to summarize these multiple ordinal scale uh, endpoints? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're looking at with ordinal scale is a, a shift or maybe as sometimes said, a improvement in, in time to recovery. Um, uh, I, I think it is true that um, some of those early um, studies, including ACT-1, had um, ordinal scale endpoints. They, of course, all studies put mortality as, um, even those studies put mortality as a secondary endpoint, but it is, that is true that the, um, the primary effect um, was on time to recovery, and, and that was measured through these ordinal scales. And that's been criticized, right? It's different to go from ordinal scale, you know, eight, which is death, <laughs> to uh, ordinal scale, you know, six, which is, you know, high flow. Um, that, that's, that's a very, very different meaning than going from, you know, no oxygen requiring hospitalization to no, no, no oxygen not requiring hospitalization. It, they seem very, um, each ordinal scale seems to have a similar weight, but, but it's a much bigger deal to go from seven to eight than it is to go from three to four. So. Yeah, the or, or, or vice versa. Yeah. So I guess you can't go from eight to seven. Yeah. yeah. So. Sorry, um, probably the definition of the ordinal scale makes a huge difference uh, yeah. in terms of what uh, endpoints you include. Uh, so did they run, do you happen to know if they ran a logistic, ordinal logistic regression on those uh, uh, ordinal scales? It's a good question. I, I know obviously that all of these studies um, adjusted for potential confounders and in the placebo-controlled studies, obviously they looked at um, the distribution of some of the potential confounders to see that they were equally distributed. Um, as to whether they did what you asked, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and then uh, in the treatment guideline, in the treatment guidelines, they still recommend uh, five days and then ten days if there's no improvement. Do no. you think that's supported by the evidence, or is that more of a hail mary because we don't really have, um, yeah. or we didn't really have a lot of other treatments in the beginning? Now we do. Yeah, it's yeah. a good question. And actually, I didn't show one study which was. Um, a five versus 10 day study in severe COVID. It was also a manufacturer sponsored study. And that the ultimate result of that study or the headline from that study is that five days was as good as 10 days. And I do think in general, I would favor five day courses. Um, I think sometimes when we get into heavily immunocompromised individuals, we know less about what to do in that context. Um, and we do know that immunocompromised predisposes towards persistent virus um, replication. Um, but yes, I would say largely I've adopted a five-day ivermezivir course. So. Mm -hmm. um, we got a I want to reflect on the five versus 10 day. The, the study that was that I did not review here because I was mostly focused on um, some other aspects of the question. The five-day versus 10 day was in severe COVID, but um, they didn't, um, when the FDA first authorized remdesivir, this is actually before the approval, um, they authorized it for five days, but they said in people who um, were mechanically ventilated, a group for which we have less evidence for its efficacy, that one could extend the, the duration to 10 days. Um, as we've learned over the ensuing two years, um, I think the, um, the evidence in mechanically ventilated individuals is, uh, is, is not there. And so um, I think the five days has become uh, my preferred duration. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, and then in terms of the viral strains, uh, at one probably happened during the Wuhan and, and alpha uh, strains, um, whereas uh, solidarity probably has recruited until, you know, into the Omicron wave at the very end. Um, on the other hand, there were all open label trials, meaning they might've favored the outcome uh, uh, because um, the treatment was not concealed, the allocation was not concealed. Um, are you able to extrapolate uh, to to the current wave uh, BA four five? So you know the, the point about um, so it is absolutely true that Act One enrolled during um, the original strain, the Wuhan strain. But Solidarity, even though they published in May of twenty twenty two, I'm pretty sure they did not enroll even into the Omicron wave at all. I think Solidarity published in May of 2022, but I don't think there was much enrollment um, into Omicron. And I, uh, it's possible they didn't even enroll much into Delta. So uh, let me see if I have that at my fingertips. I think I might. But um, I think what I would say about the variants is the following. It is absolutely true that the variants affect the monoclonal antibodies um, because the bulk of the variant mutations are in spike not all, but the bulk of them. All the data I've seen to date have suggested that the small molecules of which remdesivir is one are unlikely to be affected substantially by the variants. Um, that is the mutations are not in places where we would expect remdesivir, nematavir, ritonavir, or molnupiravir to be affected. And so I think it's unlikely. Now what has changed is not so much the variants, but immunity, right? Vaccination and, and um, prior infection. But um, so that has an effect, but I don't think it's a variant specific effect. I think it's a more of an immunity effect. Um, but yeah, I think solidarity might've stopped enrollment um, earlier and we, we can sort that out in, uh, after the fact, but I don't think it went much into Omicron, if at all, it may have even been pre-Delta. So. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if somebody gets hospitalized for COVID, meaning they require oxygen, um, they will probably still benefit, uh, especially uh, if they're not yet on high flow or um, invasive ventilation. I think and so. I think if someone is hospitalized, more. yeah, I, I don't think the variants BA4, BA5, or the newer variants, which are more immune evasive, I don't think that that's um, going to affect um, what I would anticipate to be the response to a small molecule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got a question from the audience. Uh, the uh, person is asking about uh, a specific paper. Unfortunately, the paper is not a reference, but the paper argues that remdesivir treatment results in a generation of cells in the lungs that are not susceptible to infection, but uh, that fail to do so in nasal passages, meaning the the, the drug has a different effect in the lungs and in the in the immunous membrane of the nose. Uh, are you aware of any any different effect in, in, in those uh, body parts? You know, I'm not, other than what I showed at the beginning is both in rhesus macaques and also in humans. Well, in rhesus macaques where you can measure and simultaneously sample the lungs and the upper respiratory tract, the, the effect on of remdesivir on SARS-CoV-2 is seen in the lung, but not in the upper respiratory tract of, of rhesus macaques. In humans, um, there is that observation that remdesivir is not having a um, has, is not having an effect on nasopharyngeal SARS-CoV-2 levels. As to whether that's because it's not an antiviral, um, that, that's harder for me to explain the 87% reduction in, in hospitalization. I, I think it probably is. I mean, it is having an um, impact. Or is it because the, the concentration or the action is lower down where people were not sampled and in the pine tree study, people were not sampled other than in the nasopharynx. Um, would I love to do a 562-person study with bronchoscopy? Sure, yes. uh, that would be great. That would answer the question, and, and we would really need to know uh, that. I would love to see, I, you know, honestly, I don't see this question, so maybe um, you can share it with me after the fact, and I can uh-huh. look into um, the, the comment about the distribution of the drug. I've heard it mentioned that perhaps remdesivir is concentrated in the lungs, but I, I at least haven't uh, had time or um, I have not found you know a reference for that so I would love to see it if it exists so. mm-hmm. um, the person says um, modeling explains a prolonged SARS-CoV-2 nasal shedding uh, in comparison to the lung in remdesivir treated rhesus macartes uh, that's the title and I put the DOI in the chat and I will email it to you as well that would be great and I actually don't see the um, what you're looking at so maybe um, if there's others, you should let me know where to look, although I realize we're coming near the end of the time. So, um, so uh, your last answer is a great segue to equipoise. Uh, um, do you think the current evidence is sort of sufficient for the moment, or do you see the need for a somewhat more robust, uh, randomized, controlled, uh, double-blind trial uh, powered for one endpoint? It's a good question. I mean, on the one hand, I'm not fully satisfied with remdesivir. I don't think it's the you know be all and end all of treatment of hospitalized patients. That is, I think we we need better antivirals. The effects that I've shown you, um, um, I think, are real. I think there is an effect, but they're not um, they're not massive um, impact on um, uh, on the endpoints we care about. But on the other hand, I don't feel like I would. Um, um, feel comfortable 
enrolling a patient in a study um, where there was a placebo control. Um, that is, um, if someone was on oxygen, um, uh, COVID, um, I would feel like I would want to use immunomodulatory therapy plus dexamethasone. And so that that's the dilemma. I think it would have to be in some ways, and these are hard to do, these non-inferiority designs. We're getting into the same issue with outpatient therapy where we now have some drugs that we think have become standard of care, nemetovirutonavir being one of them. The dilemma with that, of course, is the, the ongoing debate about its usage in vaccinated people where it was not studied. But, um, but what people are talking about is either studying lower risk people um, with, with um, placebos in the outpatient setting, uh, people who weren't in the high risk studies or doing non-inferiority studies, which by their nature tend to be very large studies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, maybe there'll be a new drug and then uh, there could be an active control uh, trial against remdesivir. One thing I didn't say, but I think is a need is in immunocompromised individuals, there have been cases of remdesivir resistance. They're not common, but they've been reported. And so one other um, area that's crying out for a study is a combination study in immunocompromised patients, that is two antivirals versus one in immunocompromised people. And I really, really think that the field and the companies that make these drugs need to prioritize that type of study. Mm -hmm. And we actually did have a talk on immunocompromised patients before in the series, and we will put an, an info card uh, uh, up there. Um, the last question is about um, a large single loading dose for uh, high-risk outpatients. Uh, is that being studied? Could that be in the trials? And a single dose, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it was actually proposed by one of our um, really um, treasured colleagues who passed away at, at, a, at a very young age, Dr. Francisco Marti at the Brigham. He had proposed a study to, to, single, to study a single dose of remdesivir given as an outpatient to try to prevent hospitalization and death. Ultimately, the study that was done was the three-day um, duration. And I do think that if the the study that he had proposed had been done, um, I think that would have been very, if it had shown an effect, and I think it very much could have, that could have been very transformative. Um, we all struggle with the, um, the use of three days of remdesivir. I read somewhere over the weekend that um, despite the data that we've seen, it's used rather rarely in the United States, just I think purely because of the logistics of it. So um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen that study. Great. Um, thank you to all those who asked questions and special thanks to Dr. Dandy for this wonderful presentation and for answering all of our questions. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Take care.